Welcome to the Faithful and True Podcast. We come to you today with our host, Dr. Greg Miller, and uh, two of our favorites from the team at Faithful and True, Chris and Elizabeth Hardesty, are joining us today uh, for a great podcast that we invited them to join us uh, for that is going to be based around more than just sobriety, what does a man's transformation in recovery look like? And we wanted to include Elizabeth because uh, the wives out there that are watching and listening to the podcast, uh, this is uh, a key component that's on their mind. And uh, Chris was sharing with us that uh, he speaks to the women at the women's workshop, and that's a that's a popular question, isn't it, Chris? It is. Yeah, a very popular Welcome question. Welcome to both of you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, yeah. Randy. Great to be so, here. Elizabeth, let's start just from your own experience. Was this a question that you were asking and curious about is how can I know or how can I trust Mm -hmm. that Chris is really experiencing some sort of transformation in recovery? Absolutely. I think I think for the most part, it's almost a universal question for the women that come here of what would that what would that even look like? What what should I be looking for? Mm -hmm. Even if I see things, would I ever trust it? I mean, there's just so much chaos and confusion to, to wrap your head around this question. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think one of the concerns that a lot of wives have is that their husband is performing recovery. He, he's doing the right things, but it's not going to be sustainable. It's not going to last. You know, when is he going to go back to his old behavior? And one of the, the ways that we talk about it is I think what wives want is they want to experience their husband as being different. Mm-hmm. And though I think that that is true, it's kind of vague. What does that mean? And so the list that y'all are working on kind of helps identify some of the things that you could be looking for in your experiences with your husband. Right. That, re- that really tell you and show you this is transformation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think not only do the wives want to understand what that is, but I think the, the men do too. Or men who are hungry for recovery what does it look like? What do I need? What am I looking for in myself? Mm-hmm. How do I know that I'm transforming? So mm-hmm. just to maybe intro this a bit, I, I um, often, you know, ask men when I'm working with them, how are you transforming? What does that look like? And oftentimes the answer I'll get is something about more like a list. Mm-hmm. It's like, here's, I'm doing. here's what I'm doing. I'm in this group or that group. I'm reading this book. I'm journaling. I'm, you know, it's a, it's a it's a checklist, and I and I you know I'll look at the look at the guy and I'll say, well, that's not what I asked. Mm-hmm. You know, I appreciate that, and I think and and I think that's a means to an end, mm-hmm. it, at least part of it. But what I asked you is, how are you transforming? There's a transformation that happens in recovery. I believe there's a transformation mm-hmm. that happens in true recovery, and. The tricky part is like how do you articulate how do you identify what is transformation? Yeah. What does that look like? What are the hallmarks of transformation? And so uh, there are many ways maybe we could speak to this. Uh, but I had a client not too long ago. He kind of introduced me to an author by the name of Andrew Bauman. And Andrew Bauman has a number of books out. He's in this field. Uh, he's uh, uh, he's He's just got some really good stuff. And as I, as I got into the material and started looking at it, there was an excerpt in one of his books. And it, the book happens to be called How Not to Be an Ass. Mm. Okay? Yes. We may Which have to interesting, that. Yes. Right. 
And so maybe we need a little editing there. I'm not sure. Real world podcast. We didn't title it. The great thing about podcast. We didn't title it. We just repeated it. That's exactly right. Exactly. We're going to have to go before our editor, Deb Laser, to see if we need to leave that out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Or in our vernacular, how not to be maybe a survivor. Right. You know, that kind of thing. That's really what we're talking about. (laughs) You know? And as I read through the book, there was a, there's an excerpt about halfway through, and he lays out what he calls the characteristics of good and safe men. The characteristics of good and safe men, or really good and safe people, for mm-hmm. that matter. It's not right. just limited or right. just around men. This, uh, this definitely could apply mm-hmm. to our, our wives and, and women around here as well. And so I'll just maybe list those. There's six yeah. characteristics. I'll list these, and then maybe we can just go through each okay. one of them. Okay? okay. So self-aware. So self-awareness. We look for self-awareness in the uh, in the in the uh, in the client. Right. Okay. Before we go on, so let's talk a little bit about self-awareness. Yeah. So um, Elizabeth, how would you define self-awareness? Mm-hmm. Or maybe how do you? What are the indicators that someone isn't self-aware? Is not. Did you is say? Is not. Either way. Um, well, I think maybe I'll go with is. Okay. okay. So I think, um, you know, increasing in self-awareness is just more of um, an awareness of, mm. of yourself, of, of, you know, how, how am I? Isn't that great, Randy? <laughs> Are you impressed? <laughs> That's, I used to get in trouble in grade school giving examples yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> I just love it. Um, Being aware of myself. Exactly. But I think just really becoming more aware of like what, what like what's happening inside of me. Um, with my feelings, my emotions, and how is that being projected? What's going on with others? It's just, I think, understanding more so of how how am I operating in the world? Right. How am I viewing the world? Anything yeah. you would e- either of you or you, Randy, would add to this? Well, one one of the things I would say is that you are moving from what has been unconscious to conscious. Right. And we often talk to the men about the fact that they've been operating in automatic pilot. And if you've been operating an automatic pilot, eventually you will crash. So part of self-awareness is I'm moving things that I have been doing that I don't think about, that I don't acknowledge, and I start living in a more intentional, clarified way so that I understand why it is I do what I do. Um, And then self-awareness is also understanding those reactions that you have. Mm -hmm. Um, We're... Um, instead of just saying, well, that's just who I am. I have a lot of anger or I'm getting in and going, well, no, what's that about? Where is that coming from in my story and my experiences? So I'm looking more intentionally at the cause and effects within me. Um, and I'm asking the question, where did that come from? Or what is that about? I often tell men to be a detective to your own life. And that detective part of us helps us grow in our self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A word I like to use here is insight. I'm developing insight around who who I am and and why I do what I do. Yeah, I think that 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 discovery piece. I often say recovery is really two pieces, uh, overarching. The first side of recovery is discovery. There's a discovery process that's happening. I think self awareness for us is a, is largely discovery, and then kind of the recovery. Now, what do I do with the insight? Right. What's next? I have the insight. And I've, and I've come to grips with that. Now, now, how do I apply that? What does that look like? Yeah. One, one part of a self-awareness, I think, that is, can be challenging but is foundational, and that is becoming aware of our core beliefs. And we talk a lot here at mm-hmm. Faithful and True about those core beliefs. And I've heard them referred to as our operating systems. 
Um, but it's those things that we believe that are functioning many times at this unconscious level that actually inform the choices that we make. Um, for those who have been to the workshop, the way that I define a core belief is a core belief is a belief that is so central to who you are, it shapes and forms your decisions. And so if I'm making decisions over and over again, whether it's to um, withdraw when there's conflict or to um, continue to act out or to cope or escape in some way, I need to get in there and figure out what are the core beliefs that are driving that. And so the clearer I am about those core beliefs, the more self-aware I can be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the second one on the list here is safety. Mm. A a good and safe person is safe. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, just thinking through like, what what is safety? What does that look like? And we're talking about just to kind of maybe get us started here. We're talking certainly about physical safety, but we're also talking about uh, spiritual safety. We're talking about emotional safety. We're talking about, you know, someone I can approach in a way that is, um, hopefully they're, they're going to be, my experience will be disarming. It will be, um, it will be in a way that I, that I feel heard and understood and known and, and appreciated. I think too, so much, I think Chris about our own journey through this, Mm -hmm. that, um, I I was thinking, I think those two go hand in hand so much too, the increased self-awareness and the safety. Mm -hmm. Like I I really, I was, I remember just sensing from you that the, the more self-aware that you became and the way that you were stewarding that, um, in terms of how am I showing up to others? Mm -hmm. Like you were becoming more aware and, and, um, and, and just thoughtful in that way. And I, I, I just remember experiencing a much deeper sense of safety. Yeah. To be to be able to come towards you to uh, to have you know those harder conversations things like that. Mm-hmm. Well, and part of being unsafe is there is a perceived threat, and so our actions, our choices, our language, our behaviors are not threatening to somebody else. And part of the complexity of this is uh, it is my responsibility to be a safe person, and I cannot make anybody else safe. Mm that I'm responsible for my own sense of safety, that I have to make choices that, you know, create safety for myself. And then I can determine if I'm going to be in relationship with someone based upon whether or not I perceive that they are a safe person, but I can't make somebody safe. I can simply just contribute to their safety. Mm -hmm. And I think this is significant, especially in the, maybe the early stages of recovery, because there are women who believe that if their husbands were just to do something, they could be safe. And the reality is there's not anything that their husband can do to you know, create their safety. But what they can do is be safe people. And then wives get to determine how they want to relate to that or connect to that. Mm-hmm. Would you say that that was part mm-hmm. of your experience? Yeah, too? and it just it really takes time. Mm-hmm. You know, even even if if it's true that you know, I, I think it was true that Chris was really showing up as a safer man. It still was me trusting myself in that and 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 listening to my own journey mm-hmm. of of feeling and sensing and trusting that increased sense of safety. Well, I I think it's probably true that. Um, the wife's reaction and response is going to lag behind the husband's transformation. So he may become a truth teller and be trustworthy way before he is trusted or believed. Right. Um, he may become a safe person or a safer person way before 
people perceive him as sick. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the past does linger. And one of the things that's helpful for men, we often say, you can't get anybody to trust you. All you can do is be a trustworthy person, mm-hmm. and then they get to decide whether they're going to trust you. Mm-hmm. You can't make anybody safe. All you can do is be a safe person, and then others get to determine how they're going to relate to you. Right. But because yeah. of the chaos, and this is part of that self-awareness piece where I'm aware of kind of the destruction and the consequences of my choices, mm-hmm. so I maybe I'm, I'm saddened or I'm disappointed by that, but it's certainly understandable that my wife doesn't trust me even though I perceive myself as a trustworthy person given the things I've done in the past. Mm, yeah. Really good. Yeah, yeah. And this will this carries over to all domains of your life too. I just was kind of reflecting back on, I know that my level of self-awareness was extremely low coming into recovery because in fact it was actually measured. Mm-hmm. It was measured by a, as a result of an acquisition and a, com- a company had purchased our company, and I was uh, put through a bunch of uh, testing and so forth, and self-awareness was one of those measures, and it was actually very low. And what I came to realize was is that in almost every domain of my life, if not everyone, I was an unsafe person, for sure. And so, but it took a while. It took a while with Elizabeth. It took a while at work. I know people really, it took a while before they could really trust what am I, and what I'm and what I am witnessing or experiencing is that is that it, 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 can I rely on that? Mm-hmm. Is there some credibility here or not? And it does take time. I think that's a great it's a great point because often I hear guys say, "Well, I'm being safe. I don't understand why it's not trusted. I don't understand what it takes. Time. It's time, right? Consistency over time, right? Yeah. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. So, when one other so, thing I would say is. If I am an unsafe person, that's a pretty good indication that safety wasn't modeled for me growing up. Mm. Um, It's not always a direct cause and effect. And many times when I'm unsafe, it's because I wasn't in an environment of safety when I was young. Mm -hmm. So what some of these components of consistency, transparency, um, following through with commitments, loyalty, those things that actually help us to be safe... Those weren't modeled, and so therefore we grow up being unsafe. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So it, it's important to let, if, if I come to the conclusion that, wow, I'm not a very safe person, that it's about an assessment. It's not about shame. Because if it becomes about my shame, oh, I'm an unsafe person, um, what ends up happening is I get, get stuck in that Absolutely. place. But if it can yep. just say, oh, that's an assessment. I'm not a very safe person. Then it becomes something I can address mm-hmm. and begin to change. It's, but I have to be aware of it first before I can change. And that, that's exactly what happened. I went right to shame. I, rem- I still remember. I, we don't have time to get into it now. Um, but it started It started as a place of shame, mm-hmm. right? And then it became more of a, okay, well, this is just an aspect of myself that I need to work on. Mm-hmm. Like, doesn't define me right. and who I am. Right. So, uh, so that's safety. And I think the next one plays right, again, right into safety. It, and it's going to be exhibiting emotions in a regulated way. Mm-hmm. And that's my, it's kind of my paraphrase of what, uh, of what uh, Andrew Bauman lays out. He calls it, knows the difference between anger and aggression. And I think what he's, he's trying to draw this distinction between kind of a clean anger or a way of being, maybe being more assertive than being just straight on aggressive, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, which clearly, again, plays right into safety. Uh, but someone who knows how the difference here, right? I can have my voice and I can have it in a, in a, in a 
productive and measured and, and calculated way. Um, or I can be the bull in the china shop and I can just be out of control and just causing chaos in the way I'm, I'm reacting emotionally and interacting with people emotionally. So th- again, learning how to really steward your emotions, steward your triggers, that sort of thing. That's what we're talking about here in terms of emotional regulation. And we're back to that idea of doing it in a safe way, which means I'm expressing my emotions and it's not threatening to others. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we do think of the term, the idea of anger as being the core issue around this, but it can be in any of the emotions. If someone has significant depression, the way that it can become threatening is if there's this undercurrent of, and you are responsible for making it better. Anytime I'm experiencing something and I'm moving it towards someone else and in some way directly or indirectly communicating, you are responsible for the emotion that I am feeling, that is threatening. And so even in the way that we do it, I can be depressed and clearly communicate and you are not responsible for this. I am angry and though your actions may have triggered it, I'm not going to express it in a way that's threatening to you and making you responsible for my reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm responsible for how I steward and experience my emotions. And when I take responsibility for it, it's less threatening and it's regulated in a way that is safe. It can be intense. Mm-hmm. Anger can sure. be intense and still be safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's important to acknowledge too, like, you know, the, the flip side of anger that I think there are many of the clients we work with where they, they may say, well, this doesn't count for me because I, I don't yell. I'm not a rager. Mm-hmm. And yet the way that their anger comes out is maybe more in the passive aggressive or, you know, maybe they're going to hide or cover in order to um, kind of deal with it. It's going to leak out somewhere. And right. so I think they're again, becoming uh, more aware of how 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 does anger show up for me? Mm-hmm. You know, how is anger expressed? Because I was I myself was never a rager. I wasn't a yeller, but I had plenty of ways that that anger would leak out in in more subtle forms. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and for a lot of people, their coping strategy strategy is withdrawal. And for many of them, there is a trigger of an emotion that results in the withdrawal. So for some, it could be anger, and they have beliefs about anger, but they kind of weaponize their anger by withdrawing, or it could be grief or sadness or hurt. Um, But we are, when we're withdrawing, we're actually threatening the stability of the relationship. Sometimes we perceive that a threat is always moving against, but sometimes what's threatening is when we move away. And for a lot of couples out there, there can be this dance where some get intense and move towards it, others have reaction and move away from it, and both are threatening, both are unsafe. They're not the stewardship of the emotion. Mm-hmm. I may need space, but I can name that. I can say, you know what, I'm really angry, I'm really sad, I need some space, which is very different than withdrawing and isolating from right. a relationship. Yeah. yeah, good. All right. Well, the next on our list here is understands how their emo- excuse me, understands how their actions impact others. I think another good spin on this would be also understands how inaction or, or not acting mm-hmm. impacts others passivity. as well. Passivity, sure. And and so, you know, really, what what am I, What are the impacts of my actions? What's going on? What have they been historically? And what are they now? And what could they be or what might they be in the future? Really thinking about and understanding that, that my behavior and the decisions I make, it has a profound impact on the people around me. It's mm-hmm. important. Well, one, one of the lies that many people who struggle with addiction have is, um, I'm not hurting anybody. Mm-hmm. 
And I think especially in the area of sex addiction, where the perception is I'm doing this in isolation, nobody knows about it, I'm hiding it. There's no way that my secret behavior could be hurting anybody um, because I've deceived myself into believing that in isolation I'm safe. Mm -hmm. And so it is that acknowledgement of the choices I make, even and maybe especially in secrecy, are going to hurt the people around me. And we also have this belief that, oh, nobody will ever find out. Mm -hmm. What we forget, though, is even if nobody knows what's going on, there is a consequence to our choices that are hurtful to others. Um, I think one of the mistakes we make is um, I didn't hurt my wife until she found out about it, that the information hurt her. And what we often say here is actually when you did it, that's when you hurt her. Mm -hmm. When she found out about it, that's when she was just informed about the hurt. And even around, we all talk a lot about full disclosure and the importance of it, but a lot of men will say, well, I don't want to share more because that will be hurtful to my wife. Well, yes, truth can be hurtful, but what's really true is when you chose it, that's when you hurt. Mm -hmm. So even understanding in secrecy, there are consequences to the choices that I make. Mm -hmm. And I was just thinking about the word that you said, Chris, about un understands how his actions impact others. I think understanding definitely is important. And I would add that ownership piece too, you know, really taking responsibility and ownership of that to acknowledging, not just understanding it, but also acknowledging Good. it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's not that we try to live a life where there aren't consequences or costs to others. There will always be cost. You know, one of the, the things I try to remind myself is this, this, to do this choice has a cost. To do this choice has a cost. It's not about avoiding costs. It's about determining what the costs are going to be and choosing the cost that I think is best or most manageable or um, the, the better of the choices. But it's naive to think there are choices that I make that don't impact other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, the next one on our list here is, is it, it's about kindness. So kindness is kind, kind to myself, kind to others, both. Right. We talk a phrase we use a lot around here is be gentle with yourself, mm -hmm. be gentle with yourself. And so uh, there's a there's an element of kindness to ourselves and certainly extending kindness to others. And again, remember, we're talking here about more than just sobriety. This would be a hallmark. It's something to look for. Am I seeing kindness in that person? Am I seeing kindness towards others? Am I seeing kindness towards towards him or herself in the way they're interacting with them. Mm -hmm. And there's a difference between being kind and doing something kind. Sure. And there's a very different energy. And so if all I'm doing is performing kindness, the appearance may be that I'm kind, but there's not been this shift of kindness or gentleness within myself. And so again, it's that distinction between doing recovery mm -hmm. and being in recovery. And I think for some wives, Again, their husbands seem to be doing the right things. They can give the list of the things that they're changing. And they can even name, well, my husband did this thing. It was kind. But it doesn't feel like they're experiencing their spouse as different. Kindness can be one of those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think of this um, word kind being different from nice. Mm -hmm. You know, that I think there, there's a level here where it's, it really, it, it goes deep. It, it's, it's from the heart. It's mm -hmm. intrinsic. And I love how Andrew talks about here. It's kindness to yourself and kindness to others. It's, it's both. Right. And I, I, I know that I've experienced that like from you of, of, I remember back before recovery of seeing the nice 
come out sometimes. Mm. I mean, there were mo sometimes. <laughs> there were there were moments where well, there, were, you know, there were moments where I would say that Chris was nice, and and I think I clung to those moments. But after recovery and experiencing that that really deep uh, level of kindness, and it and it stems from I really think that that place in you of kindness to self, really a a, a different rootedness mm -hmm. in you, a different foundation. Yeah. Yeah. And often, yes, I think that's really the, that's at the crux mm -hmm. of this and maybe even the next point, which we'll get to in a second, but it's, uh, I know Mark used to talk about, um, love others as yourself. You know, it's kind of hard to really extend love to others if you're, if you're not loving or kind to yourself, you know? And so, so many men come in and, and ladies too, but so many of the guys I work with come in here and they're just... Their self-image, their 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 sense of self is just so beat down, is that they just can't. They it, it's it makes a lot of sense that they can't extend kindness, or there's not a place in their heart to extend kindness because they don't have it for themselves. They don't believe that they deserve that or that they're worthy of that. And well, so again, yes. it gets back to that original story. They didn't experience kindness growing up, mm -hmm. and so. You know, the scripture says we comfort with the comfort that we have received. Well, using that concept, we express kindness from the kindness that we have experienced. Mm -hmm. And so if there hasn't been kindness, then we're going to have difficulty knowing what that is. And part of recovery is learning and, and experiencing things that maybe we hadn't experienced before. Mm -hmm. It is reparenting ourselves from that wise adult part of us and bringing these things like kindness into our lives when they were missing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good, good. Well, so that's definitely a segue into this last point, and is secure in their identity, his or her identity. Uh, I think that it just they go hand in hand. That's a lot of the work that we do around here is identity work. Your sense of self, who are you? You know, where where that you do have inherent worth and value. Separating behavior from who you are. These these types of things. You know, and so the guys that are not just sober, but the guys who are really transforming are embracing, mm -hmm. embracing the identity of who they are. Mm -hmm. But for us, for me anyway, it's in, it's in Christ. That, that's where it's centered and where it's rooted. But really believing in your, that, that you're, uh, you, not just believing, but being secure in your identity. I was working with a guy this morning, and we were just kind of talking about these actually. And I said, you know, in some ways, if you think about your identity almost being like you're creating a shield around your identity, not a mask. It's mm -hmm. not like people can't see your identity, but a shield, like it, like a shield that can't be penetrated. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas when as things come at you, it's not going to. It might, I might, I might have emotion about it. I might, I might get stirred up about it or what have you, but it doesn't pierce mm -hmm. all the way into the identity. It doesn't change that. I'm rooted and I'm secure mm -hmm. in my identity. Mm -hmm. So yeah. yeah. Well, and other people's reactions or judgments or criticisms doesn't knock us out of our truth. Right. That we have a sense of truth that we go back to. And even the way that we talk about recovery, that recovery is the journey of becoming the person that God created you to be. Mm -hmm. It is this comprehensive sense of self that doesn't come from how you compare to other people or how people react or respond to you. It comes from the truth of who you are and the truth of who God is. And I would say, you know, having been in recovery for years, this is the ongoing journey, mm -hmm. you know, that we are so easily swayed to believe that our value, our identity, our yeah. safety comes from something external, something beyond us versus it really comes from something that was 
within us, that's God's spirit in us, constantly moving us back towards truth. Mm. Yeah. I love what you said there, Greg, that this is just, this is an ongoing journey, I think, for each of us. I think this, I, I think all the points are important, and yet this one to me, just to, it, it, it's the crux of this whole mm -hmm. journey. I feel like for all, I mean, the men we work with, women we work with, it's just really having this foundation that, um, that, that is unshakable. You know, that I am enough, that I am deeply loved, the belovedness that we talk mm -hmm. about. And it's true. I think that every day there's going to be opportunities to knock us out of that truth. Right. Right. And, and, um, and, and try to kind of come at us in that way. And it's, it's just that journey of even knowing what does it look like to get back in that truth again. Uh -huh. Well, and for many people, they're able to regurgitate truth that they've been told. Um, it's very different, though, than it experientially transforming you so it's coming from within you and many people will say i believe that i am the beloved child of god they can repeat that because they've been told that mm -hmm. but it's not transformative for them and that's part of the work of living in the truth of our belovedness well chris and elizabeth uh thank you so much for joining us again today on the faithful and true podcast and uh, bringing this great subject and discussion to our audience. I think it's been uh, very beneficial to our listeners and our viewers. Greg, as always, thank you for your leadership well, as, uh, as host. <laughs> and uh, we want to thank our loyal viewers and listeners for joining us again today. We hope that uh, if you're in need of uh, the guidance and direction that you can attain through the Men's Journey Workshop or any of our other workshops at Faithful and True, we invite you to visit faithfulandtrue.com. Uh, until we join you again, we hope that this coming week will be a week filled with many blessings and with great issues.